This is Dave Moss of the Unfunded List, and I'm pleased to bring you the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Hello from New York City. It's late July, and I'm spending the weekend at the Nexus Global Summit. Friends of the show will be familiar with Nexus because I talk about it a lot. It's an international network of social entrepreneurs and funders who convene regional summits in every continent and host a flagship event, the one I'm at, every year in New York City. I was one of the original organizers of the event and have attended every single global summit. Uh, and I think I've been to every U.S. summit as well. The privilege of membership in the Nexus community has amplified my positive impact on the world exponentially. Over 50 members of the Unfunded List Evaluation Committee are also Nexus members. And 10 of the organizations that have made our list were founded by Nexus members. And so to give everyone uh, who could not attend a taste of what a Nexus conversation sounds like, I brought my microphones along this year. On day one, we interviewed Nexus newcomer Noel Francois of HeatSeek, an organization that is currently honored with a place on the unfunded list. Due to a partnership that we have with Nexus, we're able to help some folks get in for free, and Noel is one of those folks. I hope you enjoy. Noelle is uh, on the unfunded list. Congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> How did you get on the list? I got on the list, well, the way everyone gets on the list, by submitting a, a unfunded grant proposal. But the way that I found out about it was, I believe, a former unfunded list person, oh, Samir, right? Yes. Yes. So. Um, yeah, that's, I, I forgot about that. That's very interesting. Uh, so Samir... Um, and involved with Transfer Nation, mm -hmm. who made our uh, a previous version of the list. I forget if it was the most recent or a couple ago. Uh, but it's a very interesting uh, organization here, and I can understand why you would know him. Um, it was the yeah. first time I met him, actually. Well, the, it was the first. It was the very first time I met him. So he was is. The first time you met him was when he introduced you to me. Yeah. Why did he? Because his business partner and I went to graduate school together. Oh, okay. And so they are working on a new project together um, that's all around like uh, financial services for underbanked folks. Yes. And so Abby, his business partner, um, I had invited him to something at Blue Ridge Labs, which is our workspace and incubator that we had done. Um, and they're interested in applying for the incubator. So I had invited them to that event, and we got to talking, and he's fascinating. That's very interesting. I want to get back to uh, the exchange in a moment, but first I think you should say what your, what, uh, what is the name of your sure. nonprofit on the unfunded list for the folks? Yeah, so I, I, I co-founded a nonprofit called HeatSeek, which is dedicated to making sure that low-income New Yorkers have heat in their apartments in the wintertime. Um, what else do you want to know? Uh, I think that's good for now. Um, and uh, what? Uh, so, the, the, uh, but just to clarify, it's a um, it's a sort of a technical solution for yeah. So, uh, sort of low-income renters in Manhattan. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so all five boroughs. Sure that they get that they're being provided heat by their deadbeat landlords. Well, mostly to be able to document when they're not receiving heat, right? Uh, so um, it's really difficult to prove that you don't have heat. Um, and usually what folks were doing in the past was 
keeping a handwritten heat log where like every couple hours you would have to check the indoor temperature, the outdoor temperature, the time of day, and then calculate whether or not your building was in violation of like the building code. That's what you're expected to do? Mm-hmm. For that's like nonsense. days and weeks on end. And I mean, that's you... quite, that's like slightly racist. Don't it's a huge it's burden. Like who's... white people oh. are going to think about doing that. They're the only ones who are going to think about it, have time to do it. Right. Like, imagine if you're, you're a believe, mom, work. you've got, you know, if you've got two jobs, like, yeah. And so you, you keep that handwritten heat and log. based systems are garbage, yes. in my general opinion. Yes. <laughs> but they are easier to deal with than proactive we systems. We never received a complaint. Right. How are we supposed to know? That or that light bulb was out. we received the complaint. <laughs> there was literally but... no way for us to know that that light bulb was out without receiving a complaint. Oh, yeah. There's actually a real problem in D.C. If you, uh, one of the jokes is, is that the, you can basically tell how many light bulbs will be out in a neighborhood by the average skin color in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's because it's they do it on a complaint-based system. Mm-hmm. And one, they can ignore complaints in certain districts. And they're, they're obviously going to be more responsible to the complaints from the more powerful districts. Right. Uh, and the result is, I mean, you can go around my neighborhood and you won't be able to find a light bulb that's out. Uh, mm-hmm. You can go to some other neighborhoods in town, and you won't be able to find a light bulb that's on. Right. And it's crazy. We know how long light bulbs last. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I it... was on the light bulb crew at Colby College one summer, uh-huh. and what Colby does every single summer is they just replace every light bulb. Yeah. And all their light bulbs are on all the time. Right. <laughs> and I'm sure that's easier than, like, having someone on staff all year long to go out and fix them. And respond to complaints. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah they could just hire local teenagers like me. We knew how to change light bulbs. Mm-hmm. So, I did get into some shenanigans. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, what caused you to start doing this? How did you become aware of the problem? So I actually became aware of the problem quite a bit before I started working with HeatSeek. It was when I was living in D.C. in Columbia Heights. Um, I was living in a... Go Clerks. Clerks? Cardoza High School. Ah, yes. Okay. I was right <laughs> around the corner from Cardozo. Um so I was living in a row house, and it was really old. It was really gorgeous, but it was uh, had, like, all wooden windows that just were not sealed. And so even by the time I moved in, the landlord had already put up, like, all of the, um, like, plastic coverings that you put up to keep, like, the wind from blowing in um, to try to, like, weatherize the the mm-hmm. apartment. I see it. This is also the neighborhood I live in. Yes. And you can still see that sort of thing. I'm sure the ones from our apartment are still there. And they would just, like, billow in the wind. <laughs> it was really terrible. Uh, but so in the winter months, you just could not get warm. Like, it did not matter how high we turned the heat. And, you know, we could only turn it so high before it was like, okay, we're paying an arm and a leg for all of this to go straight out the window. Mm-hmm. So that's when I learned what an electric blanket was and a space heater. And I would sleep in, you know, multiple layers. And... I really saw how it impacted my ability to be productive, to get out of bed in the morning, um, all of that. So that was in the back of my mind when I moved up here for graduate school. And I started working with HeatSeek right when it was being founded. Um, The co-founder is my good friend, William. We went to undergrad together. um, And he had an experience in New York City where he was living in East Village? Yes, the East Village in a building that was almost entirely rent-stabilized units. So lots of long-term folks who've been living in their apartments for for 
decades. And they had one apartment in the building, which was the apartment that the boys lived in, that was market rate. And any time the heat would go out in the building, which it's an old building, so it, it would do that from time to time, all of the rent-stabilized tenants would come to my like 24-year-old friend and be like, hey, we need you to call the landlord because you guys pay more in rent than all of us combined, and he'll only listen to you. So if we want to get the heat fixed, you guys have to be the ones to advocate for us. And so he had that in the back of his mind when then a few years later um, we co-founded HeatSeek together. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you really can't go. Uh, you can't – You, it's – hard to find someone who will say, yeah, I've never had the experience of having my heat go out and, and being cold in my home. Like, it's, it's that common of a problem. Um, I, I, I assume there are some people who have never had that problem. Sure. Who live in, like... Who own their, their own home. Well, sure. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, where are you from? Are you from Virginia Beach? I'm from Virginia Beach, yes. Uh, what's it like in the winter there? Does it get cold in Virginia? It does get cold. I think mostly it's, like, a humid cold which is really unfortunate, but my parents own their house, so I'm we could control Maine, the heat. Originally. <laughs> yes. uh, and when I, um, an elderly man up the street uh, froze to death one night mm-hmm. uh, when I was a little kid, which is not um, all that uncommon up there. Uh, it is very serious business, winter up there. Um, like to the, like you, you basically, you're, uh, our heat went out. That's not an, that's not an option. You're going to die. Right. You can't. <laughs> you cannot live in a house without heat. Um, yeah, it's not like they, no amount of heat blankets or like anything like that, right? In, in general, though, like a lot, most people have um, fireplaces and stuff, or, right. and the gas goes out and stuff like that. And there's a lot more strict laws and regulations up there, particularly around um, the elderly. And stuff. Well, I think you have a lot less renters up there too, right? Probably. Probably more people who live in houses than apartments. Uh, yes, for New York rent, you could just buy a house in Maine. So <laughs> um, it's all very interesting. So you. Um, uh, you met your co-founder in undergrad. Where did you go? William and Mary. Huh. Um, and how long after undergrad did you found this thing? Oh, like time? ten years. So I did undergrad, then okay. I moved to DC. I worked for a nonprofit for a while, then I went back to grad school, and we co-founded it uh, the summer between my first and second year at grad school. So talk to me about the ten years in between your relationship to this guy. Mm. Uh, during the 10 years between undergrad and, like, how often were you talking to him? How often were you in touch with him? So we lived in different places. I lived in D.C., and he lived up in New York. Um, But we'd been such good friends in college that, you know, if I was going to come visit New York, I would sleep on their couch. I knew all of his roommates. Um, Yeah, there's, like, a a large contingent of William & Mary folks up in New York City, which is interesting because it's not a large school. Um, Uh, I went to Dickinson College. I think it's probably a very similar... Mm-hmm. Um, situation mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the main like I think I got a solid education there and I enjoyed my time and everything but the like the main benefit from any institution like that I, I really do think is the, the network and the community that you get to build mm-hmm. and as particularly if you're going to try if you're planning to engage in social impact work right you're going to need help you're going to need a, you, well, one you're going to need a couch to stay on in New York mm-hmm. right? all the different nonprofits I ever worked at all the different couches I bummed at it's almost entirely folks from Dickinson right who are now here working at J.P. Morgan or wherever garbage that they do. <laughs> yep. Uh, and right, I've always been an honor. Like it's, it's in the, they generally like to have you there. But like, if you don't have that network of folks, right, people who can't bum a couch in New York, it's a significant hindrance. Right, this is New York City. Yep. Uh, right. Um, it's 
where a lot of the donors are. So mm -hmm. to me, that's why I um, why I need to come up here often. A lot of my evaluators are up here, uh, and it can be. I mean, it's kind of cost prohibitive <laughs> to come and pay for you know get a get a nice hotel every time you come, right? That's totally. Awesome. Right. Uh, you know, companies can do that. Government officials can do that, but like the not the the unfunded can't. Yeah. And you have to, and you have to you have to find some sort of way. Mm -hmm. This is something I talk to the unfunded about a lot, right? It's basically that in the beginning, you need to find a way to cheat. Uh, you are not, a, a, unfortunately, I don't like that it's this way, but unfortunately, we don't have a society that rewards, that just outright rewards good ideas, right? You have to have, right, in fact, you don't necessarily have to have a good idea at all mm -hmm. to be successful. Yeah. Um, that on its own, plus $4, you can get a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Right? You need to, you're gonna need to be able to, like, so uh, for me, I'm, I'm generally uh, quite candid. Uh, I started a nonprofit. How did I cheat in the beginning to get, and we're still right, trying to get to be a sustainable place. Uh, but basically we cheat by the, you know, I was born to a wealthy family. Mm -hmm. uh, I have access to uh, you know, some money and my uh, mother has been very generous with both her time uh, and uh, resources. And also I'm, um, you know, we're not Rockefellers or, uh, or anything. Uh, or even Zuckers, <laughs> uh, but very comfortable, right? Uh, and that, that, if it weren't for that, right? So, and also my parents were college professors, so Colby, where they taught, paid for my tuition. So I, mm. I, I had no student debt. Yep. And uh, so that meant I can work the salary. Uh, if you can't do that, right, you need to have a salary right away, you're probably not gonna be able to start your nonprofit at all. Yep. Right? Uh, so uh, how did you cheat in the beginning? Yep. Um, I also was very lucky that I finished undergrad with no student loans. My parents were able to help me. That's, a, that's huge. It's I mean, huge. It's pretty much you can't do it if you've got, you got to go take, got to take that JP Morgan. That's why those guys are working at JP Morgan. Mm -hmm. Dickinson was very expensive. Yep, exactly. So, so I feel very, very grateful for that and very lucky. Um, how else did we cheat? Well, I cheated in that I was still in graduate school. So I didn't need to have a job for the whole first year that I was doing HeatSeek because I was a student. Um, and it made it very easy since I had classes at night. I could do all of HeatSeek during the day. You found it easy? <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, it wasn't easy. But uh, all of the other folks doable. who... It was doable. And a lot of the other folks who were on our initial team, because when we first started, we had a very large team. It was all volunteer and we were competing in NYC Big Apps, which is a tech competition here in the city. And pretty much everyone else on the team was a developer or an engineer, and they all had day jobs. So I was the only one who could really do stuff during the day, which is when like a lot of our partner organizations are in the office. Um, so that was really helpful for us, but also it was helpful that I just, I didn't have to have a full-time job because um, mm -hmm. I was taking night classes. Um, I should say that we do have uh, many of our applicants uh, when I follow, like they, they apply with their program or whatever. And often as we're reviewing it, I'm assuming that's the only thing they do, right? And then I have the follow-up call with them and I find out they have a full-time job on top of it. Yeah. I mean, of course they do. They, they, have, to, they have bills to pay and stuff, but I just think that's, that's impossible. Like this is really hard. It's full-time work. Yeah. You can only do one full-time thing. No, not true, that's apparently. Not that's not what full-time means. Yeah. Right? No, there are people who are like, I have two full-time jobs. No, you don't. You have two part-time jobs. Yeah. That's not what full-time means. Or you just don't ever <laughs> sleep and you're, yeah. I guess, yeah, you, you, could, you would have to give up if you gave up your sleep, right? But then, quite frankly, if you're not sleeping, 
you're not doing full time and you're not you're not showing up right. to work. Like your brain's not present. showing up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like we have, you know, we're we're limited in, in what we can do. And generally America has this culture around like work hundred hours a week or whatever. Yep. But if you look at some I mean there are European countries in particular, I like the French are far more efficient per hour. Yeah. Right? They take Friday afternoon off. Right. Uh, so do I. I take uh, I work Saturday morning, but I take Wednesday and Friday afternoon off. So mm. as often as possible. <laughs> See, I feel guilty about trying to safeguard my weekends. Even I feel like I should be working on the weekends, but yeah. I, it's. Yeah. But you I need to, you also need to safeguard right your mental. Well-being. Exactly. I realized that by the time Monday came around, if I was working on the weekend, I, I was still devoting brain space to heat seek and not truly unplugging. And mm-hmm. come Monday, I was far less effective for the whole rest of the week. Uh, I sometimes do. Uh, I will also do like half day or just a little bit of work on Monday as well. Particularly if I did a, like a rough weekend. Yeah. The weekend can be great. Yeah, like, sure. You can't schedule like you can't necessarily schedule meetings or calls, but you also don't get interrupted yeah. while you're working. Mm-hmm. I find if I have a good, if I put in two solid days on the weekend, I don't have to work that week. Yeah. Or I can focus entirely on on meeting with folks and stuff. And you need like, this is one of the like that's sort of one of the ways I cheat, right? The like because in general I think like you know it's not going to be. Like in the beginning, anyway, it's not going to be nine to five in an office where, like, uh, and uh, you know, one of the other big misconceptions from a lot of the folks that uh, that apply to us is, right, that I will get, right, I have an idea, I'll apply for a grant, and then we'll start doing the work. That is how they think the order goes, mm-hmm. and I understand why they think that. That'd be great if that's how the order went. And there's probably some people who've done that before. Uh, you would need to be a very well networked and, and influential person to be able to get a grant before you have. Uh, a project to show. Right. Um, so, uh, and I imagine this was something that you had to deal with. You probably didn't start your work off of, like, it wasn't just, here's your grant and let's get going. No. Uh, so can you, what was, can you talk to me about the, the very first funding you, you received? Or what, um... Yeah. We were really lucky. The very first funding we received was the prize money for Big Apps. Okay. So we competed in, it's a New York City civic tech competition. They change it up every year. So the year that we did it, it was four very broad categories. I think it was live, work, play, and wildcard maybe. So it was build a piece of technology that makes it better for New Yorkers to live, work, play, or... Or wildcard. <laughs> or literally whatever else. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> we entered in the sure live category. Uh, similar, this is a, a very common thing for cities to be doing now. Yeah, yeah, running hackathons and running LA uh, projects LA like this. They've got all kinds of like incubators and accelerators. The city has a bunch that they've partnered with NYU and the engineering school out in Brooklyn. Is there anything yeah. in D.C.? I'm asking Margaret now. Yes. I don't know that there's Startup Grind and there's a hackathon too. Yeah, Startup Grind. Uh, and also, um, and a lot of interesting um, incubator programs like that. There's an accelerator in D.C. too that I'm blanking I on the name of. No, it's a, I'll think of it at some point. But yeah, there's definitely some stuff down there. There is, uh, and we have, um, some of my evaluators uh, are very, and I, I kind of share their concern. Very nervous about prize philanthropy mm. and also like fellowship philanthropy. We have, I've seen uh, several programs that, uh, because prizes and fellowships and things like that, right, uh, while great, are not sustainable sources of revenue. And so there are, uh, sometimes you'll see a group that becomes very good at winning prizes. Uh-huh. That has no other way of bringing in revenue. Right. And there's only so many prizes, right, that you can get. So eventually, right, they get all the prizes. And then they don't get any funding ever again because they yeah. can't get those prizes again. And they never learned how to do regular fundraising. Well, and also just think about how much time they spend 
crafting their their pitch to win those prizes versus actually doing the real work. Yes, that's true. And I would say uh, some of these prizes have gotten a lot better with how time consuming it is to apply mm-hmm. to them. I mean, some of the when they when this stuff first came out, like, and you'll still see this sometimes, right? It's just like so burdensome to apply to this thing. Um, but like, uh, so we've had a few folks uh, from the list win the um, we work creator awards. Mm-hmm. Which you might consider. I think you may have missed. Did you apply for? Not the ones that were in New York. Our good friends actually won the New York one, like a year and a half ago. I think. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, neat. Just fix. Um, oh, cool. But we had a they have one coming up. That won in London. Oh, cool. Uh, and uh, I think probably some some more folks will win a Gasberry uh, aligned program. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just to let you know, there was so it was a little bit weird because it, it, it's called the Nashville Awards. Like anyone on the East Coast was. Right. Is that already done? I believe the deadline was July 20th. Oh, shoot. Uh, but uh, I know the director of the awards, mm. uh, and she likes the unfunded list. Oh, fantastic. Uh, I can't promise anything, but sure. maybe we can. Their application is super quick. Uh, in fact, yeah. The thing that takes the longest is you have to do a 90-second video. I think I can handle that. <laughs> you just said you'll have to do it on your iPhone real quick and, yeah. and get that in. I know sure. sometimes people might like, that's the thing. They say just do it real quick, right? But like. For me, that would be a very that would be very stressful because <laughs> yeah. I wanted to, this is the video, right? We got to do it right, right? right? And you're right, they, how much time they write on the pitch and everything. But there, it wasn't overly. There's not a whole lot of questions and everything. Overall, it, it was it's a very quick. Uh, See, I love uh, that. Uh, and it's great, like, and it's one of the and it's the thing like that we were creator award could be a way to cheat. Uh, for mm-hmm. instance, but like you're not going to keep winning it over. No, of course not. And uh, you know, one of the things I've seen some folks. Uh, Right, who get that prize, and right, it also comes with uh, free office space. One of the things that was pretty interesting is they, uh, at the end of the year, had to they didn't have an office anymore. This is very unsustainable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> had that problem before. Yep. Um, but I mean, uh, and uh, uh, lots of obviously it's better than there not being any of these things, right? Then there'd be fewer yep. fewer opportunities to cheat and stuff. Right. Um, but have you had uh, right? So other than uh, the prizes and stuff, have you? Um, Looked at any of the other sectors of philanthropy, uh, foundations or yeah. individual donors or perhaps government grants or things like that? Yep. Um, all of the above. <laughs> um, so after we did Big Apps, we kept working as an all-volunteer team for about another year. Um, that's when I was finishing up grad school. Um, and then we got into, it's called Blue Ridge Labs at Robinhood. It's an incubator. Um, it's the lab's. Foundation? Yep, it's the lab's arm of the Robin Hood Foundation. Hmm. Um, and so it's sort of their, like, tech lab. So all of the projects that come through the lab have to be focused on eliminating poverty in New York City because that's Robin Hood's mission. Yeah. So it's all social impact technology projects. That's very interesting. Yes, it is wonderful. Very, uh, I think you, you getting in with Robin Hood is a very good idea for you. Yes, although uh, making the leap from labs over to Robin Hood proper is yep. challenging. No, it'll be a long and slow process, and you'll yes. have to be patient. Yes, You should look for opportunities to get people who work there involved in what you're doing. Right, right? If there are yes. volunteer opportunities or things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a call with the folks at Robinhood once, back uh, a few years ago. Uh, and really interesting, uh, Jeff Bezos's brother works there. Really? Yeah. I did Mark, not know Mark that. Mark Bezos. At the <laughs> New York office? Yeah, he works oh, that's funny. He's like director of partnerships or something. Oh, wow. I had, I had a really nice call with him. 
Uh, nice. It's a really big foundation here. It's the right end. And, and also, like, just being involved in that network, right, you're going to, like, every donor who cares about your issue goes to their gala each year and stuff like that. So that's, that's, right. that's, this is very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think, right, the big city, right, there's probably some individual, smaller yeah. family foundation folks that might not be as famous as Robinhood. Right, Hood, right. Right? Uh, do you, what, are you, what are you doing for... for so that's ones? where we have tried a lot of things, but, but really kind of struggled is figuring out how to navigate that system, how to even do that research to find out what the family foundations are and what they fund. Not all of them even have websites. Um, Hardly any. Yeah. And then even just knowing, like, I mean, I'm a rando from Virginia Beach. How am I going to start that conversation with someone? Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, as an introvert, networking is always a little bit challenging for me. So trying to think about uh, ways that I can, I don't know, Get get in the room with the right people is always hard. So there are right, uh, Robin Hood Foundations, a you know, professional foundation with many many staff. Right, many. Uh, and then there are I know, there's hundreds of people. Yeah. There, I think. Uh, which is very unusual for a foundation. The vast majority of foundations have no staff at all, and they have no website at all, which is often mentioned as a like criticism against them. Mm. But I'm just like, what family has a website? Yeah. <laughs> That's what. So fa- I like to say, family foundations are a lot more family than foundation. Right. And I think that's why a lot of people are confused and um, uncomfortable with approaching them because they're thinking about it like it's some sort of business, right? Or like if there's a building somewhere. Right. That's what foundation means. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But it's not. This is a family. It's just some family, mm-hmm. right? And families are very, very different. We wrote a pretty interesting piece on the Funded List website a little while ago uh, where I compared um, getting invited to submit to a family foundation to getting invited by a family to dinner, mm. right? So you can come up with, if you, you can identify a family and be like, I would like to get invited to dinner at their house, right? And how are you going to do that? You're going to be much more better suited to figure that out than you would how to get invited because right? you you've been to dinner before. You understand that process a lot better, right? And like, so one, you can't, you're not just going to show up at their house <laughs> and knock on the door and say, hey, can I, right. can I come in and have dinner? Or you can't call and be like, hey, can I, I'd like to come over for dinner tonight? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Those things probably won't work. However, there are some families that might be like, yeah, yeah, yeah come on in. Right. It could, yeah. uh, but it's probably not, probably not a great strategy, right? What would work, right, is you meet one of the family members and prove to them that you're a valuable and interesting person, mm-hmm. right? And then wait. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> Continue to be a valuable and uh, interesting person, and eventually you, get, you might get invited. Yep. Uh, for the large part, it is their calendar and never your calendar, which is probably one of the most frustrating things for someone like you. Right. Uh, we do. I, I have been asked this question four times today, actually. Um, right. That they. A lot of people are aware that like, the the best approach to the best way to approach a foundation is you know build a relationship, go slowly, um, prove your impact with numbers to them. Right. And then I get, but I get this question a lot. Like they're aware of that, and they say that they know that, and they're doing it. Right. But then they ask me like, do you know any foundations that are capable of like moving faster than that, responding to emergencies, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. And I say, no, that's not what foundations are for. Individuals can do that, mm-hmm. which is, not for nothing, about seven times the philanthropy of foundations. Individuals gave like $400 billion last year. No one knows? Right, so I'm looking around. <laughs> I think that's about right. You can check this. This is, this information is, uh, the IRS makes this available. Uh, but in general, individuals are giving seven times what the foundations are giving. Right? And an individual can do it just like that. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need to, I mean, some people need to check with their family, right? Family, all the time, but the, there's 
there are individual philanthropists here in New York that uh, you know, they would be a very good fit, but they're they're even harder to meet than right. Right. No, like most individuals don't have a. Right? But you can right sort of learn what your profile is, right? Uh, and I think right in New York there may be very uh, a number of profiles that someone like you might be able to to target right people who understand the the real estate space, mm-hmm. right? You know, perhaps work in it or sometimes often you know made money in it. One of the awkward things about philanthropy is oftentimes philanthropists are trying to like they know that their <laughs> their image <laughs> needs some rehabilitation. Right, and you need to yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, and this is a fine way for them to 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 do that much mm. better than just like hiring a PR firm uh, and probably more affordable. Right. Um, the um, Another thing I wanted to talk to you about is that you do have a, it's a tech solution. Yes. Which is another thing that foundations are very ill-suited to. Yes. Uh, very few of them have board members that are aware of, right, of even what an app is. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that I only barely know. I am the only, and I can assure you I'm the only member of the Moss Family Foundation that has any idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I bet Fred knows. <laughs> hmm. Interesting question. He was, used to be a ham radio operator. So oh, he totally. Might he might know. He will know. He might know some, some stuff. Um, he would be pretty interesting when you do it. We're actually talking about it. Um, We've done a lot of stuff with radio signals and sending data really? over radio. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, the uh, but um, so uh, we had a program on the unfunded list a few rounds ago uh, called Fast Forward. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard? Mm-hmm. Have you ever applied there? We yes did apply. Because they we... have a number of levels. Like I think. They have, uh, you can get the fellowship, but there's also other ways to be, be yes. listed on their website. So I think it was the first so. year maybe they had done it. I'm trying to think. There was some reason why it didn't work for us timing-wise, mm-hmm. but then our friends Just Fix, who got the WeWork Creator Award, they did end up doing it, and so then we got a, re- a lot of like really good feedback from them about um, sort of the funder network and what they were doing out in San Francisco. One of the cool things is so they do have a network of funders who are aware of the, of the tech sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I am like sort of uh, cautiously watching it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen this happen in other fields, right, when there's only a handful of people who fund, a, who fund something. Um, right? it, it, uh, then we're only pursuing the solutions that those people want to pursue. Yep. And we're, and we're objectively not pursuing the other ones. Right. Uh, and when it comes to, and like these are in the tech sector, uh, these, I mean, the, the big, the big three would be Omidyar, yep. um, what is it, Blackboard? Blackstone? Black- Blackstone, maybe? Stone? Uh, they're a real estate company. There's a, it's Black something. <laughs> Could uh, be and, Blackboard, isn't that the college software? Uh, Black, yeah, maybe. I don't know. They, uh, I, they might be them, I don't know. Um, but there's a, the, and the other one would be Google. Google comes there demo day and does a decent amount of funding. Hmm. And a, a term I'm trying to get to catch on is uh, Gugongos. Okay. You may have heard of a Gongo, which is a government-operated NGO. Uh, it's a, oh. like, it's a real, it's, it's a real term. I know it sounds like, it sounds like nonsense. Right? Yeah. Because NGO is, just in case we don't know at home, non-governmental organization. Yes. So, uh, but actually, uh, in particular, this is a, a very strange phenomenon in China. Um, they are basically all the NGOs are funded and operated by the government. Hmm. Um, and like, uh, and uh, even here in, uh, in the U S I'd say this most, most happens, most often happens with, uh, like Gates grants recipients, or there's a lot of Gates gongos, mm-hmm. uh, or USA ID. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just, that doesn't, that, there's no, there's nothing to be done there. 
right? But you have the one, this one donor who happens to be like the only one who understands your sector, right? And is able to write these very, very big checks, right? And you end up sort of like basically just working for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, um, you know, how much do you, uh, and it would be a great problem to have, right? Google trying to give you too much money. Right? <laughs> yes. Uh, but, um, and I'm sure you're mostly trying to right, get funding in, but do you, do you spend any time thinking about like making sure that you have balance with your funding base and that you never end up in a situation where it's, it's uh, disproportionately coming from, from a small handful of folks? Oh. In general, this is not a good model. For the, especially for the impact you want to do? Mm-hmm. We have not had that challenge yet, and I think it's probably because we're still finding new funding sources at all times. It's not like we've been around long enough necessarily to have like year-over-year funding from the same funders. Um, but I would also say that like we we look for grants from large foundations. We're very interested in exploring family foundations and individual giving. We do a lot of small, do- small donor giving through our website and through campaigns. Um, we're looking at contract work. Like we're really kind of thinking about what are all the different revenue streams that we could potentially access and how might we make some of those work. Mm-hmm. So even earned income is something that we're, we're looking at. Oh, uh, you certainly should. Yeah. Uh, I did mention that uh, individuals give uh, about seven times as much as foundations do. Mm-hmm. I should point out that uh, nonprofits bring in, uh, actually, it's pretty close to seven times uh, in earned income uh, mm. than individuals give in philanthropy. Yeah. It's a really big misconception that um, that nonprofits are mostly funded with philanthropy. Yeah. Uh, it's the, I think 75% of all the funding is actually just them making money like any other business does. Right. You think um, Dickinson charging whatever right right hospitals nonprofit hospitals charging all they're almost all nonprofits they they make they bring in a lot of money and they have grants yep um and uh so that can um it's i think and it gives you some like it it, that can help you uh if you're in a situation where you're becoming a gugongo or Mm -hmm. a midyard ongo right or a skolongo midyard does not fund hardware (laughs) he does well, his foundation doesn't. I bet I can prove that they have. <laughs> that we actually can. We can pull the 990 from a mid-year network, and I bet we can find at least one piece of hardware that is funded. It is a, uh, lots of nonprofits because they don't want to field too many proposals in that sure. area. We'll say we don't fund that, right? Yep. But uh, I bet if Pierre Midyar says I want to fund this thing, they're going to do it. Yeah. Money, right. They can always like that's the thing about these hard and fast rules that foundations claim to have. Mm-hmm. Right. The, there's usually a billionaire in charge of this outfit who's, who, who is perfectly fine with breaking his own rules if he wants to. Right. <laughs> right. But Joe Schmo, me, from Virginia Beach, can't influence they, they him say, to yeah. change when those they, rules. When they go to, well, you need to be – I think that's when you need to start being, like, one, like, don't believe him. But also don't argue with them, like, right there in the room or whatever. Oh, sure. Like, keep them on your radar, right? Keep trying to work – prove that you're a valuable, worthwhile person. One, these funders, their strategies change all the time, constantly. Mm. With each new consultant that they hire, yep. Uh, there's a new list of things that they do not fund. Sure. Uh, I used to. Some of the folks that listen may know. Uh, run a satirical website. It was MossFamilyFoundation.org. I took it down because it was very confusing. For people. <laughs> um, and one of the one of the funnier bits on the website was our list of things we do not fund. Right. One of the things on the list was anything. <laughs> um, but uh, like, you know, capital campaigns, general operating, restricted funds, anything. 
<laughs> right, so, and sometimes that's what those lists look like. I was, you, you're, I look at them. That's, I got inspired to do that because I saw a real version of this, mm-hmm, and, yeah. I, and I couldn't figure out what they did fund. It looked like their list of what they don't fund was covering everything. Right? One of our previous funders has now transitioned to be an operating foundation where they don't give out grants at all. They just do their own work. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's very difficult for their grantees, I'm sure. Uh, um, yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so um, I am like a you know, I've been on the foundation side of things, and so just to sort of give some context as to why they behave this way, I mean it's not just it's not uh, right, it's very it's diff- it's a lot more difficult to be a philanthropist than one might imagine. Sure. Um, obviously, like the money, like making sure the money gets there, that part's not difficult, right? But making sure you accomplish the change you want to accomplish is one of the more difficult things um, to do. And there are a lot of people out there fundraising and saying no is very difficult as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, one of the reasons why foundations don't give feedback that makes our program necessary is because when you're the funder, giving the feedback is like an invitation to ar- argue your way yeah. back into the grant. Especially with um, one of the reasons why uh, you know, the unfunded list needs to exist is so that we can provide feedback to these folks. Mm. Uh, and um, when you're the actual funder, that's very difficult because it's just an invitation right, to, to argue with the feedback, particularly here in, in America, uh, where we have uh, a problem I've recently been aware of, and I get to, my parents are professors, so I've got some pretty insight, good insight from them. They call it the A student problem. I'm an A student. This B plus must be a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm here now to explain to you, Professor Moss, uh, why you've made a mistake in grading me, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, um, I suppose that work, it must work with, with a lot of professors. I can assure you, uh, no one will ever have Professor Moss in class again, unfortunately. <laughs> Neither one of them, they're both retired, but mm-hmm. uh, anyone who did will know that that approach does not work, does not get your grade changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, Bong got sued a couple times over it. Wow. Someone brought in a note from the doctor saying that he needed extra time on a test, and she was just like, I don't. I don't care. You can make as many notes from your doctor as you want. Like, Colby's a private school. I'm, I have a PhD in French. Mm-hmm. You, you're paying me to do this. Like, yeah. Uh, but they, you can see how they got there, right? They, it's a career. Like, they're obviously, uh, especially when, in like high school or like the, particularly the, the fancy private high schools they might go to, this, does, this definitely works. Sure. Right? And it's become part of the system right, mm-hmm. to come in there. Right? And then they get rejected by a grant, right? And they, they would try to, they try the same approach. Right. It actually happens with us sometimes, right? If somebody doesn't make the list, mm. right? uh, I offer everybody, whether they make the list or not, a phone call with me to talk through the feedback, right? And we do introductions and connections and stuff, even for people who don't make the list, right? I, uh, I try to keep the list very exclusive, as you know. Mm-hmm. I also try to make sure I'm highlighting, right? Because who's going to look through a list of, like, the Forbes 30 under 30 right. list actually has 900 names on it, and I'm right. sure no one actually looks at everything, right? I want, like, the final list to be, like, accessible and uh, and uh, an interesting, right, half hour read, right, for most folks. Um, but sometimes people, like, instead of trying to talk to me about how I might be helpful, right, they're trying to talk their way onto the list. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, and it was really confusing to me for a while because I was never like that. I didn't care what grade you gave me. I certainly wouldn't try to go argue it up. I'm sure I never did that once. Um, but, uh, like, and so it was, when the first, the first few times it happened to me, it was very strange. Uh, but I can tell you, like, um, right, the, in general, in the philanthropy community, uh, when we talk about this, like, the best practice is to not give feedback. Mm-hmm. Uh, I attended a training on how to say no early in my 
philanthropy career. Mm-hmm. I was really excited to attend it because I was. This has been a problem that's been on my mind for a long time, and I was working as a fundraiser at the time, mm. uh, and I, I didn't find my the reductions I was receiving particularly helpful. So uh, the man's name was uh, Dr. Solomon. He and a guy named Charles Bronfman wrote a book called The Art of Giving. Mm. Uh, so. Right. I was kind of excited to go to this and see how they were working with the folks that they do not fund. Uh, and while, uh, so I do, I do, I should say, I do admire both Charles and uh, Dr. Solomon. I did find this uh, presentation a little bit disappointing. Mm. Uh, it was not really, it was more about how to get them to, to go away, mm. uh, to, not, to not bother you. Mm-hmm. Right? And what he told me, I remember this metaphor, it's one of the, one of the interest, most interesting ones I've ever heard. Right? He said, saying no to a funder is like uh, dropping a large metal ball into some sand. And you want the that large metal ball to be as smooth as possible. Can't have any cracks or handholds on it or anything. So that when the uh, person you're rejecting tries to pick it up, right, it just keeps rolling over in the sand. You can't get it. Mm. You can't get a grab on it. And it just keeps like it. And a, a crack would be, right, if I were to say, I'm sorry, we're not funding your program because we don't think it's sustainable. Mm-hmm. Well, then you can pick that ball up and say, but it is sustainable, Dave, and here's nine reasons why. And then you have not gone away. You're still in my office, and I now have to deal with like your nine new reasons. And I have long before this decided we're not funding you. Mm. So it's not a great situation for me to be in. Not particularly helpful for you either. Uh, and I can't necessarily talk about like, well, right, anything I were to say, you're going to take as well. This is what I need to do in order right. to get the grant. Um, and that's not necessarily the right way to go about it. Uh, but you do need feedback on the ideas right so that's why we set up uh, our yeah. program uh, the way we did uh, and I do like I've been in that situation as well I was on the board of something called the slingshot fund mm. and we give uh, so we put 50 groups into our guide every year this is a, it's a, a Jewish organization it's all um, it features innovative Jewish projects and 50 make the guide every year and we gave grants to like seven to ten of them each year uh, and uh, it was a, there was a giving circle of young Jews that made these grants and one of the more fun parts of the year uh, was when we got to make the call to tell them they were getting it. We gave $40,000 grants there. So, mm. And oftentimes, uh, I remember I, uh, we gave a grant to Hala for Hunger, mm. uh, and their budget the year before that was $19,000. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. They're, now they're a big global organization. Um, and uh, um, I, uh, so I got to do some of the yes calls, and they were very exciting. Uh, and then one year I was like, well, I'd like to do I'll do all the no calls. Hmm. And I assumed that like the staff was doing it or somebody else was or something. They were like, no, we don't do yeah. <laughs> we don't do no calls. What are you talking about, Dave? Um, but it was very interesting. So I, I didn't work at Slingshot. I was just part of the giving circle. We had already made our decisions. They understood that. right? And, but I also did, they, they, they understood that like because I was involved with it, like I knew other people in the, in the world. right? I could introduce these folks to some. I was very interested in a lot of their work. Uh, I remember I did, uh, some of them were in my, um, back then, um, a couple of the programs were in the community where my grandmother lived, and I uh, we had a nice. Uh, there was a program called Gateways out in Boston. We went by and uh, had a tour with Grandma. And I think she ended up making some gifts, um, and that was entirely because I, I made these no calls. Uh, but it was really really difficult. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of them did try to argue the way up, and it's just a really bad like it's a tough situation to be in when you're on like it's tough on both ends of the phone. Yeah, too. and I've had to do that as well. I don't know who um, these aggressive fundraisers are who are trying to argue their position, though. They're out there. I don't want to name any names. Benjamin, 
<laughs> right. I doubt Benjamin uh, is, listening is listening to, to, to the to my podcast yeah. anymore. Um, no, I actually I really liked Benjamin's project, and I really wanted to help him out, but he just kept trying to tell me why my evaluators were wrong. Oh. And eventually, I was just like, "Listen, we can spend this time that way." <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to pass on what you're saying to any of them. Right. Uh, or we can talk about how I can help. And he wanted to. He chose A. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I don't understand. I don't really understand it. I think some people are saying that you have to, you have to ask, right? I think some people are getting that, mm. like, you need to be more aggressive, like, you really need to get in there. Don't take no for, like, they're, that's what they're, they're hearing sort of, gen- or they have that in their head, right? Um, and, you know, they were an A student, so. They think they can argue they up, they yeah. Have, they have decades of experience behaving this way. I have the opposite problem where I will talk myself out of actually even submitting the application because I'm like, mm we're probably not going to get this and we're probably not qualified. You know, we were talking about imposter syndrome before we started doing this podcast and it's really real, you know? Um, Yeah. That's, uh, I want to, I want to talk a little more about that. Mm -hmm. Um, can can you give me a specific example of something you were going to apply to and you decided that you didn't? Oh, I've had a 99% finished application to Robert Wood Johnson for months that I've solicited feedback for. Invitation only. Um, they so have, to no, no, no. They have one, uh, section of their giving that is their pioneering ideas grant, which anyone can submit to, but it is, it's a cattle call. I mean, you, you, we've yeah. actually gotten well, some funding from, low, right. low we've actually gotten some funding from them in the past. So it's oh. not that they don't know us, but That's very good. then we also be, knew, an, nurturing that relationship. but then we knew enough people who were like, uh, We've been talking to them, and I think they're going in a different direction. I don't think they would fund you if you did apply, which is probably true. Mm. One of the things to remember with, with uh, an entity like Robert Wood Johnson, right, or Omidyar or, or something like that, right? They, yeah, they're going to have rules. They're going in a different direction, but they're also enormous. Right. <laughs> and there's good, like even if they make an exception 1% of 1% of the time, mm-hmm. that's hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, man, this is very interesting um, so did you? So you had been funded by them. We got a small pass-through grant. Yeah, but, from but something. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, most people can't even get on their radar at all. Right. Uh, we do have a few reviewers with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you had one on my oh, application. Yeah, I read your. I think so. Probably. I would have done that. I think so. Yeah. Um, she had excellent feedback. Yeah, she's just she's very good, as you might imagine. Uh, she knows a lot about domestic health, which I do. Mm. Other than like my, my own health problems. Mm, yes. <laughs> uh, my shoulder hurts. Okay. And uh, and uh, some other problems. <laughs> I'm getting old. Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, every day. Every day I get a little every bit Every day, old. every single one. Um. So what, what do you think? So it, tell me, why did you? So you ultimately didn't. You had another opportunity there, and you didn't. It's, well, it's also, it's not time bound. It's a rolling application. Yeah. But you just sort of, you you put it aside. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. um, I think we did a round of applications like a year and a half ago and got rejected from most of them. We got funding from one, um, but it was a first time application for all of them. So we got one out of, I think, four, um, which... Mm -hmm. Okay. But, like, why not just, you're 99% finished. I know. I know. I should just submit it, but. Okay. Yes. No. No, no more. <laughs> Say no more on that sentence. Just, I should, you should submit. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because um, there's that place that big, you'll be able to, you can submit again, probably. It's not going to be the Oh, yeah, the for sure. They'll be a new, they're, they're hire a brand new team, right? For I sure. I think I just, I have this um, belief that, like, my application needs to be perfect. And I, I have to, problem. yeah, and, and I often talk myself out of things if I'm like, well, I, I don't know anyone personally at that foundation or so, you know, it's a long shot to begin with and I don't have the most like, it's a longer shot if you don't apply. Exactly. That's what I keep telling myself. You are right though. That like you should, you should definitely prioritize places where you like right. have a better shot. Right. But like right. if you're fit, uh, you should send it out. I should say like, I don't want to be hypocritical here. Like this is, we don't apply to as many things as I as I might, right? Uh, but part, and I've this is how I rationalize that for myself. We are claiming that we can give feedback on any grant proposal. Mm-hmm. So if I submit a grant proposal to mm-hmm. a foundation, I really feel like it needs to be a flaw. It needs to be the best grant proposal they've ever read. Yeah. Or else, why would they trust me to be giving feedback to other people's grant proposals? Right. Ooh, uh, that's a high bar you've set for yourself. Well, I think about what I do. What, what do I do for a living? Right? right. I'm not trying to do this. I'm not trying to be a B plus student. Right, right, right. I'm not going to get an A by arguing my way to an A. Sure. I'm going to do. We're going to do the the work correctly, right? And if I wanted to, there's lots of other opportunities <laughs> in the world, right? If you're going to do this, right, social impact work, you have to pursue excellence. I think there's a lot of people who are like fine with good. And this mm-hmm. It's just not. That's if good were good enough, then they would, yeah, they would change that word to excellence. Right. I think my problem with these uh, applications is I hold myself to a very high bar of excellence, so high that like I trip myself up and, and won't end up submitting stuff if it's not. It's probably it's probably too high here. And so you, were, you mentioned uh, imposter syndrome. Mm. Talk to me about the the role that plays in, the, in your in your applying for funds. Do you often think you're an imposter? Yeah, absolutely. Especially because I don't have a background in fundraising, and so much of fundraising is relationship based Mm -hmm. um i think it's very easy to think well someone else must have a better in or know this person better or they've been getting funding from these people for years like there's no way that we're gonna you know even be a blip on their radar that that kind of thinking is unhelpful but in my sort of darkest times usually right before i'm about to fall asleep (laughs) that has entered my mind um yeah and i think also you know, I have a master's in public policy. I'm very interested in housing policy. I've worked for nonprofits. That is sort of the field that I feel like I know well enough to get started in and then know enough to ask the right questions to keep learning. Fundraising is not something I have any background in. Um, and so it already feels like something that I'm like pretending I know how to do and I really don't. Um, I think part of it, too, is I'm just talking it up too much in my head of, like, it's this thing that you have to be really good at before you can even start. But I did read somewhere that uh, it's a very gendered thing, too, right? Like, uh, I can tell you men don't say none of the stuff you just yeah. do men say or think. Right, exactly. I certainly don't. I have a B.A. in theater. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And that's it. Well, and that's the who thing. Like, who are who are you, Dave? I, I mean, it doesn't. I don't let it. Uh, I have no background this, in this, tech. This is very fascinating to me. I uh, and well, you, you know, I had to go through it with the text. <laughs> policy. You've worked at a bunch of nonprofits. You obviously know what you're talking about. Your proposal is clearly good. It made the unfunded list, mm-hmm. which is difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm not the one who. De- I'm not necessarily the one who decides to make the list. Right. <laughs> um, 
but um, like it's just this is weird to me. Um, what we were talking a little bit before, and I've asked uh, some of my other guests this season. Um, I've been uh, thinking a lot about the uh, concept of unlearning. Mm. Uh, I heard recently, and I actually I really can't remember who told me this. Uh, I've been talking about it a lot, and I can't remember where. I, mm-hmm. But uh, he said that it would be the most important skill of the 21st century. The people who are going to be most successful in the mm-hmm. 21st will be the people who are best at unlearning things that they had previously learned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Noel, what do you have to unlearn? Yeah, well, I think it flows right out of what we were just talking about, which is I need to unlearn some of that fear around like only doing things that I feel like I'll be perfect at. You know, it's it would be much better to try and do well than to say I'm not going to try anything that I don't think I'm going to be perfect at. Mm-hmm. Do you have um, uh, mentors or senior folks that are advising you? Yes, we have a wonderful board. Um that has gotten a little bit smaller recently, and so we are actually looking to put more people on the board um, and bring in a new cohort of mentors and advisors and, and folks with um, institutional knowledge. And then uh, we went through the incubator at Blue Ridge Labs. Mm-hmm. Hannah and Bill and KT are just like the smartest people ever um, and have been doing this long enough that it's not just about how smart they are, you know, giving guidance on, uh, you know, strategy or something like that like they really understand the uh, emotional side of like this is your baby and you're trying to get it do these folks are you getting i mean you get uh, your technical advice and maybe funding support or connections and stuff Hmm. are you are you getting simple encouragement from them yes i also think that i could be better about asking for encouragement when i need it um okay in general, I think this is a this is a responsibility of board members and mentors and advisors. Yeah, uh, I am uh, a big fan of a man named uh, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. Mm. Uh, and in fact, uh, I think one could argue uh, that if it weren't for him, there would be no unfunded list. Okay. Uh, he, I forget which. I saw this when I was a kid. It's one of the first things I remember. I think it was after the um, the shuttle crash. Mm. And he was talking about how what his mother told him to do uh, when. There was a disaster, and he said, uh, look for the helpers, right? And uh, that's, I think that's very good advice. Mm-hmm. And what we do here at the Unfinalist is we help the, the helpers. So, uh, And there are lots of things. That, for me, uh, I did found this organization slightly before the last presidential election. Mm-hmm. So uh, often there are things that I view as disasters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the way what's really great about it is to, to and for instance, uh, the president of the United States is a former deadbeat landlord in this town. There's probably a bunch of people out there. Uh, that were cold because mm-hmm. of him and his greed and craven behavior. Our good and friends are suing Kushner companies right now. Oops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, and so right, uh, I can sit there and be mad about him, right, or I can uh, think about what you're doing. Right. Uh, and uh, another thing, Mr. Rogers, to say is, uh, you know, you are special just for being you. Hmm. I like that. I think that's very true. You think you're special just for being you? No, I think everyone's special just for being them. Like yeah, I think. Particularly, I'm, we're talking about you. Oh. <laughs> I mean, you, you, what you do is, is remarkable. Thank you. Um, and I mean, like that, in that you are better than most people. Thank you. <laughs> most people are not trying to do any of this. The vast majority of people never even get 99 percent done with their grant proposals. Right. They don't even start writing them. Yeah. Uh, and you've actually submitted some, been through accelerators, you're actually helping people. There are people out there that, uh, for all we know, are alive now. Uh, yeah. And there's going to be a lot more in the future. That stuff's amazing. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, but you asked about encouragement. <laughs> That's the encouragement is knowing that like I have a purpose on this planet that I get to wake up every single day and do something that's really meaningful to me and that I get to look at, you know, we were talking earlier about cheating and my parents being able to to help me pay for undergrad. I think if you are in a position where your parents are able to help you in that way, you have a responsibility to do something to give back. That's always sort of been my philosophy is like I I don't see how I could grow up with the advantages that I have grown up in we were a very upper middle class family Mm -hmm. um and and just take that selfishly and and run away with it and say okay now I'm gonna figure out how I can you know make my life better I think if you have benefited from some of the um Mm -hmm. you know the whatever um you have a a little okay okay Uh, so I'm generally a critic of the like give back mindset of philanthropy okay uh and it's because i think it uh, is a little bit patronizing mm. uh and uh, some in some cases it can get really bad into like you know colonialism sure um and not necessarily the right way to think about the, the social change you want to achieve and so for me i mean like you it can be selfish right you will be happier mm. if this problem is solved right personally sure happier. yeah personal fulfillment for you there's a lot of other ways to get paid other than money right I actually personally find meaning uh, a lot more valuable. Uh, I'm someone who's been able to uh, sort of have an abundant amount of both meaning uh, and actual money. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, not, not Zuckers or anything. I guess I more meant, you know, we live in a sort of racist and classist society. And we as white people benefit from that. And to turn a blind eye to that and pretend that it is not happening is, I think, very selfish. Uh, it's a hill maybe I'll die on, but who knows? Um, well, on, you know, on that point, I do want to like I'm I'm very concerned about the rise of white nationalism, right? Like, right. Lots of racist, systemic racism, other things. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm um, I'm Jewish, mm. mm-hmm. uh, so uh, I don't want to be killed by the Klan. Yeah, <laughs> fair. Uh, and uh, one of the things that gets pointed out a lot uh, is that, you know, so Jewish philanthropists in the 60s were very supportive of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And when it gets talked about, it's just sort of like, well, they were giving back, right? Or they understood because they'd just gone through the Holocaust, right? But one of the things that gets forgotten is they were, they were their own civil rights. Uh, mm-hmm. Jews were second-class citizens here in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom went to Wellesley uh, under a quota system. Mm-hmm. She was one of the five Jews allowed to go there. And there was a quota for uh, black students as well. Mm-hmm. Exact same number, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, you know, and so that's, there was, you're looking out for themselves on that, right? And, and, and also a, a decent, uh, dose of, right, they had been through, right, suffering in other places, right. and, and they wanted to make America the, for themselves, they wanted the America that they wanted to live in, right? So, right. And I think when you try to pretend that you're not doing it for selfish reasons, mm. then you're much more likely to become a, a patronizing right. organization, mm-hmm. right? And so I think it's, you know, it's okay to think that, not that, like, you're a horrible person. Mm-hmm. You want to get back. I'm not going to revoke my <laughs> special. That you're, that you're special. You are. You're a special person. Just Thank for you. Um, if you get a chance, it's really good. Uh, recently made documentary. The documentary. I've heard you can't it's make fantastic. it through it without crying. Oh, I think I. I mean, it's basically just uh, just 90 minutes of Dave crying. Mm. Watched a movie. Yeah. Um, uh, terrific. Uh, this has been a swell conversation. Do you have any uh, questions for me? Mm. She's thinking. 
I have a lot of questions for you, so I'm trying <laughs> to narrow it down. Okay. What advice would you give to, because we talk about this a lot at Blue Ridge because a lot of us are first-time entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, what advice would you give to someone who's trying to break into the social entrepreneurship space who doesn't come from a background with a lot of built-in connections and who's trying to organically, authentically build up some relationships with folks who might be interested in supporting their work? Um, yeah, good question. Uh, so a couple things. I have one uh, sort of blanket piece of advice that I give to any entrepreneur who's asking me for advice. Uh, and it'll sound a little snarky, so I apologize. Uh, but uh, it's going to be harder than you think. That's not snarky. That's just real. One of the better pieces of advice I can give anyway. And I think I see it a lot, especially in the proposals that we read, about people and their, their fundamental problems that they thought this was going to be simple. Mm-hmm. I hear a lot of people saying it's, it's going to be low-hanging fruit. Uh, and that's, I, that's, I've learned over the years that that's a, that's a, uh, a big red flag, uh, particularly like I've worked on some, I've worked on an anti-corporal punishment campaign mm. a long time ago. And some people, like, this would happen uh, often, right? Someone would find out that corporal punishment is still legal in some states in America and assume that we're just one campaign away from ending it, right? Mm. I have someone say, well, that's low-hanging fruit. Obviously, we shouldn't hit kids, right? Well, go to Mississippi and talk to a principal about that. Mm-hmm. He's going to have a different opinion. There's a reason why they're still doing it down there. They're convinced it's good. Right. This is an intractable issue. If you really want to work on it, it's going to take decades. Right. right? So I've seen donors come in, organizations get started, thinking that it's going to take nine months. Yeah. Right? But you've got 19 different states, 19 different laws in the books, right? 19 different, like, governments, basically, to deal with to get this out of there. And no, and basically no impetus to do it. The people who are getting hit are the least powerful mm-hmm. people in this country. Yes, We're and non-voters. Black boys going to right. public school in Mississippi. Right. He's got absolutely nothing he can do about any problem in his life, which is very unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the other thing I would say, uh, right, for people who are trying to break in who don't, like, if you want to, like, you can build connections by, I think, um, like I was talking about being a valuable and, and, and useful actor in the space, right? Have them think that, like, you want them to be thinking that you're someone that they can call on. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like with me, lots of times people want advice on something or whatever, so I'm on people's radar a lot. Right. Um, and I would say uh, be genuine. People, everybody can sense uh, inauthenticity, mm-hmm. and there is a lot of it uh, in this space. Uh, I hate it. I'm one of the only people that will call it out when I see it. Other people will just not like you and not tell you why. Right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right? And so you can't, and, they, and, and, and on that front, you need to know you're, not everybody's going to like you. If, in fact, if everybody likes you, you're doing something wrong. Right. Right? And, and, and what's probably true is they don't all like you. <laughs> They're just, just not saying you. Yeah. They do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so be candid about the things you're like. If you think something's racist, say that it's racist. And that's going to, you know, some people are going to be upset by that. But other people are going right, to value you for it and be mm. much more likely to want to help. Um, is there anything uh, for uh, folks who might be listening, who might be interested in Heat Seek? Obviously, you... Um, like you might uh, want donations or sure. grants for things, but is, yeah. there, is there other, uh, you said you mentioned, you mentioned uh, building your board of directors? Yes, so we are building up a board of directors right now. Um, we're doing it slowly. We have a prospectus and we're doing interviews and really getting a sense of what people want to bring to the organization in addition to what they're looking to get out of serving on the board and then trying to find um, individuals that are a really good match. So if folks are interested and they think they have something that they can bring to the table, um, love to chat with them they can definitely uh go to our website heatseek.org um and 
shoot me an email. Uh, terrific. Uh, thank you uh, very much, Noelle. Thank uh, you. I hope you enjoy uh, the remainder of the Nexus Summit. Yeah. Uh, it's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you. If everybody at home wants to learn more, uh, as Noelle said, it's uh, uh, heatseek.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, good luck with your funding going forward. Thank you so much. Thanks for this. Thank you.